right, you know, I uh, I don't know if you guys, you know, again, I uh, I'm teaching this more than I thought I was, so I'm I'm still learning kind of the rhythm. And uh, this shirt, this book is short, and chapters are short, um, but that doesn't always mean like you know, you read them. So. Presuming maybe you didn't get a chance to read it, I have a handout with some of the things that we're going to take a look at. The handout, I think, is in the back here, hopefully by pennies. Uh, I, just, I just had four quotes, and I tried to uh, quote um, St. Gertrude's words themselves so that uh, we can kind of just focus upon kind of her outlook on life today and her life itself. But one of the things that I noticed going, walking through, reading through, walking through, St. Gertrude the Great. Now, we're kind of introduced to her already from last week's St. Matilda's chapter. So same, you know, same convent, same area in Germany. But um, one of the things that really came out was how St. Gertrude and this is my own words, remembering rightly, or she remembered rightly. Okay, and I'll explain what that means in a second, but four quotes here, and I work from the end of the chapter backwards. Uh, You flooded me with your gifts, so now, I'm sorry, St. Gertrude is praying to our Lord. You flooded me with your gifts of such beatitude that even were I to live for a thousand years with no consolation, neither interior nor exterior, the memory of them would suffice to comfort me, to enlighten me, to fill me with gratitude. So St. Gertrude picks up this theme of memory, and not memory in terms of information, but memory that has a profound effect on her own soul. That's actually uh, very important biblically speaking, and we'll take a look at that in a minute. The next one is, at last, if you had given me to remember you, unworthy as I am, but even only a straw, I would have viewed it with greater respect and reverence than I had for all your gifts. So anything from God understood correctly or remembered rightly is something even greater than all your gifts, which is kind of a false antithesis on St. Gertrude's part, but we'll let that go because God's presence and his gifts, it's not like you can really pick and choose. You, you get all of God in his gifts, but we know what she means. Uh, the next one is uh, under the kind of heading of tribulation, and she's recounting something from her past. With gentle sweetness, Jesus calmed the di- and the distress that anguished her, a torment that Gertrude saw even as a gift of God. And that's the point, the important distinction. And then it's quoted. To pull down that tower of vanity and curiosity, which, although I had both the name and habit of a nun, at last I had continued to build with my pride, so that at least in this manner, meaning torment, and her anguish, I might find a way for you to show me your salvation. So she looks upon her past of uh, anguish and torment and then sees something more profound in the midst of it. Uh, Then the last one, just kind of her own personal history, which I found very interesting. 
I have chosen you for my abode because I am pleased that all that is lovable in you is my work. Uh, um, this is God's words to her, by the way. She's recounting. For this very reason, I have distanced you from all your relatives so that no one may love you for reasons of kinship and that I may be the sole cause of the affection you receive. So, um, you know, from the chapter, there's not really any information about her family aside from her kind of church family, her holy family. So, um, for me, that's like a sadness because, you know, not having a family is kind of sad. Um, but she sees it in a much different light than I would. So why that is. So, you know, there's a thread woven throughout the chapter where Gertrude remembers rightly what God's done and doing in her life. And in remembering rightly, she didn't need to annihilate any past painful experience. And that's important for us. As anybody, you know, as we experience pain and suffering in our past, whether it's because we have perpetrated, perpetrated it or we have been the victim of any pain, it's hard to move on. And um, one of the things we kind of hear kind of in the vernacular is, you know, kind of forget about it. And unfortunately, when we understand forget about it, we treat it as if it's never happened. And that does an injustice to, to us as, you know, people who've sinned against others, but also uh, those of us who've been sinned against. So the thing is, is in remembering rightly, she didn't need to annihilate any past painful experience, such as her torment and having no family. But rather through God's presence and her and his word and prayer, so that, that was something that uh, Pope Benedict made a, a special note about through sacred scripture and prayer, she was able to reinterpret her past, her life, in a gospel way. And that's important because if you have a moment of anguish and torment in your life or you have no family, you know, the question would be, how are you going to, how are you actually going to live life? So this notion of remembering rightly doesn't let anyone off the hook for trials or persecution, and that's very important. We'll see what that means. Thus, it isn't a vehicle for injustice, but rather it becomes the means for justice and mercy. There isn't a, there, there, it's okay, to the evil that happens to you or to the evil that you actually do. But by remembering rightly, we, or you, acknowledge that evil is evil, that's justice, but through grace, forgiveness, mercy, and love, you're able to understand that evil doesn't have to end in evil. God's goodness can saturate even the evil and make something good come from it. Which builds off of what we talked about last week, how St. Matilda's life was saturated in God's word and sacrament, and thus broke open her reality to the eternal, to kind of break over the horizon of human experience and enter into the heavenly. Now we kind of we, we we're exploring what that actually means in a more kind of fundamental way. So you know, once once that's applied to the course of, of your entire life, rather than just simple individual experiences, when we actually see this as a way of life for us, then your existence or your reality takes on a story similar to Gertrude, which is good. But obviously, it's it it's more than just Gertrude. It's it's the biblical narrative where the memory of God's work is enough joy to ponder for a thousand years. And, and the struggle for us is to actually take those words literally when she writes those, not, not as, you know, something grander. Like, I actually believe she, she believes that. I mean, like, that's, that's a serious statement that she makes on uh, page 39. 
So, you know, how do we get to that point? But before we get to that point, though, we have to kind of understand the biblical notion of remember rightly. And uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 2, 24, because remembering in the biblical sense, there's, I mean, it's, it's uh, a thread woven throughout the entire Old Testament, and I'm not interested in reading the entire Old Testament today. So I'm going to pick out some fundamental places, and the fundamental event that really dictates most of the Old Testament is the exodus from Egypt. Um, you know, creation is important, obviously. The flood is important. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is important. But the story of the Exodus becomes the narrative in which the rest of the Old Testament is actually spoken. And that's important for us to kind of consider. And I think one of the fundamental passages is Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. The reason why this is fundamental is because after this verse, everything changes. Genesis is all about leading up to Exodus, or to Egypt, I should say. And then, obviously, Exodus, Numbers, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the out, like what happens after Egypt. So Exodus 2.24 is very important. And, um, you know, let's, actually, let's just start at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So what we have here is injustice. We have those who are being sinned against, not just personally, but also kind of as a society or institutionally, which you guys can, we're not going to explore that today. We're going to talk real personal. And then, uh, okay, and God heard their groaning. And this is important. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Which is kind of a strange way to end the sentence. And God knew. What does that mean? God knew what? Well, you got to attach it to the previous, uh, previous uh, clause there. God knew what he had already promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that, that would, that's a more existential or a theological question. Does, can God actually forget? Well, yeah, so we'll talk about what that means because um, what, I, what I'm proposing is not talking about forgetfulness, but remembering rightly, putting it in the positive, because I think, I think that's, a, that's actually a very helpful way, and it's a, it's a life-giving way. Forgetful, in a sense, is putting it in the negative. What we want to do is put it in the positive. Not forgetting is negative, but I mean English grammar speaking. Putting it in the negative versus putting it in the positive. So from this point on, everything changes. Exodus chapter 3, very famous passage because we find out the name of God, Yahweh. And once we find out God's name, then he starts taking care of business. All right? Kicking butt, taking names. Freeing people and setting off the story, but it all starts from these two, to these two verses, where we have a sin, injustice, done to, done to a people, and God actually redeeming these people. Now, before we think that these people are innocent in the process, now we have to turn to um, uh, 
Well, I think, let's just turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I think I put some other ones maybe listed there. But um, what we find out, a variety of other instances in the Old Testament where the remembrance actually does something. So God remembers, and then he does something. The things that happen fundamentally in the Old Testament is that he withholds justice to the people of Israel. So if they sin against God, his anger burns against them, but generally Moses or Moses or some of the other prophets step in and say, whoa, whoa, God. But, so, um, so he remembers rightly in the sense that he doesn't actually perform what should happen. And then also he remembers rightly in the sense of what we just read. He steps in to save Israel from whatever is happening. So, but that doesn't let Israel off the hook. Now, we actually have in the, in, especially in Deuteronomy, we have this phrase about Israel remembering everything. And uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a, it's just a good example. Again, I'm not interested in reading the whole entire Old Testament. So, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you should keep his commandments or not. And, uh, you know, obviously if you have the English Standard Version, the entire chapter is headed with remembering the Lord your God. So this notion is that we look from this scripture verse, we find out that God is making this wilderness journey as something to which they need to remember but in the positive sense, because one, you have to ask yourself, why are they in the wilderness? Well, it's because of the golden calf incident. Uh, you know, I mean, their sin, let's put it general, because of they sinned against God. And now we have this struggle and this turmoil happening. But God actually says, you should remember this. But not in the negative sense, but in the positive sense, meaning that this happens in a, in a, in a positive way. Again, it's not positive. I mean, this is not a good thing in, in the sense of like, hey, we hope this happens to us kind of situation. But it's, it's under this heading that even evil things happen and God, God's goodness can saturate it and do something different than what should happen. So we, we, we see this out throughout Deuteronomy. So not only does God remember, but Israel is to remember. So in each of these circumstances in Deuteronomy, you know, chapter 5, 15, 9, 7, 15, 15, 16, you know, just all those. God petitions Israel to remember that they were slaves in Egypt and wandered in the wilderness. Those are painful memories. Things that either they, they did or happened to them. But God redeemed them from Egypt, so they are to remember these painful experiences not as a, uh, a sense of torture, God's hanging it over their head, but as the story of actual God's redemption from Egypt and then his provision as he fed them along the way in the wilderness. So the last word is God's redeeming love rather than the painful memory. And through God's grace, Israel is able to begin the process of healing from all those years in slavery. And that's something that, you know, we don't have a long biblical narrative about all the things that have happened to Israel you know, you know, we basically go from Genesis chapter 50, right, to Exodus chapter 3. 
but all the, in it, you know, the years in between, these are real people that are experiencing real things and have gone through injustice and pain, and that needs to be healed. Because we're reading it in a very short circumstance, we as readers can't necessarily just uh, sweep this history under the carpet and pretend that it's never happened. We have to slow down and actually read what's happening in Scripture. So what's happening is, through God's grace, Israel is able to begin the process of healing for all those years in slavery. And Israel is able to work through the guilt and shame of the reasons why they had to wander through the wilderness. Um, all right, so, so the next thing now is, so God has to remember, Israel has to remember, but now we're at a, at a crisis. Do we remember rightly or do we remember wrongly? And God needs to remember rightly, which goes to Isaiah 43, which we just talked about, or which you talked about, forgetting things. Blotting out iniquity and not remembering Israel's sin, but rather remembering the work of the chosen one. Because if we were to read Israel, uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, in its context, the context is actually a couple chapters. And uh, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 1 and following, we see that, oh, hey, God is actually turning our eyes towards the work of this chosen one. And Isaiah 44 is a, an advent. It's, it's a messianic prophecy. This is about, obviously, this is about Jesus. So that we find out that this whole notion of blotting out iniquity and, and not remembering Israel's sin is not so much about forgetfulness, but about remembering rightly, remembering the work of the chosen one, Jesus. And then we also have God remembering rightly in Matthew chapter 26, 26 through 29, which is actually the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we pray this, gathered in the name and the remembrance of Jesus. We beg you, O Lord, to forgive, renew. Does that all sound familiar from our liturgy? Okay, good. So what we find out here is these are just two examples of Old Testament, New Testament, God remembering rightly. In Isaiah we have God remembering rightly insofar as forgiveness and the work of the chosen one. And then we also have now in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus' remembrance in the chosen one himself and the work of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Contrasted with this, too, is man remembering rightly. And in the most fundamental instance in all of Old Testament, and I, I would say, as like a teacher, the most fundamental instance of man remembering rightly is Genesis chapter 50 and Joseph and his brothers because it's, it's so explicit how Joseph remembers rightly. Now let's just kind of go over the story because I think sometimes when we learned it in Sunday school, when we teach young children, we don't actually teach them the ramifications and the radicalness and the... And the, the, the um, Injustice that actually happens in the story. So, okay, we have Joseph, who's a special child. Jacob loves him. He tells, you know, he tells his brothers about these dreams. And they harbor resentment. The resentment that actually is willing to kill or pretend to kill his, you know, Sibling. I mean, what kind of hatred has to happen for that? What, ha what kind of hatred has to be experienced in a person's life in order for that to happen? Right, but thankfully, one brother stepped in. He was the intercessor. 
Um, but he was still complicit in what actually happened, although you could make an argument, you know, he came back to look for him. He was gone already. Mm, maybe. I mean, we feel bad for the guy. Okay. So, again, this is a real event. This has happened. This is history. So, and, and it's a great injustice that's happened to an innocent person. So, if we look back over the course of 20th century and the great injustices, and currently even what, what's happening, you know, even right now in the world, this is analogous to what's happening. We have a, yo- we have a young boy who's, you know, I mean, his brothers are grown men. So, I mean, this is a great tragedy. This is, like, hardcore. This is rated R movie stuff, okay? Not for children's viewing. Um, and then, Joseph, obviously, God redeems Joseph. And all these great things happen to him. You know, kind of great things, because, you know, he, he goes to jail a few times. I mean, I don't know how many of you guys have been to jail, but it, it can't be that great. But then he looks as, you know, he finally finds his way, uh, his way up to, you know, kind of second command in Egypt. And we think, hey, when he reaches that, hey, he's, he's living on cloud nine, right? Hey, he's a rich man. He's powerful. You know, who cares about all that stuff that's happened in the past? Okay, that's not reality. Then this, this isn't a real person now if we start thinking that way. So when Jacob dies and all, this great, all these great things happen, to Joseph and his brothers. Joseph now is a worker of reconciliation. When they show up to his doorstep originally in, in Genesis chapter 42, I mean, he could easily just, you know, he could have taken them out back and, and, and cut their heads off. But he doesn't. And he doesn't do it, though, for revenge. There's not like some diabolical process of revenge going on here that he's going to really show them. Okay. He actually is working this process for reconciliation. And then at chapter 50, I don't know if you guys have turned to it, it it's something that I think is great to actually read. Jacob dies. You think everything is hunky-dory, hey, because um, you know, Jacob comes down to Egypt. The brothers now have been uh, saved from famine. And we think all, everything is hunky-dory, but then Jacob dies. And that's, that's a great tragedy because Joseph loves his father. And if anybody has lost a parent, we know this is a great tragedy, okay? So, you know, this isn't too far removed from us. And Joseph says this, um, we'll start in verse 19 actually. But um, So Jacob dies, his brothers think, oh my word, my, our father isn't going to keep Joseph from basically carrying out an act of justice against us. So they think, hey, we've got this great plan. You know what? We're going we're gonna to tell a little lie that Jacob said these things, which is kind of a half-truth. I mean, we don't have any record of him actually saying these things, but it sounds like something maybe Jacob would say, which, you know, it still doesn't make it true. But, um, and, then, and then they say, hey, we're going to be your servants, which sounds kind of like the prodigal son, but that's a different, that's a tangent. And then this is what Joseph says to him. Do, you know, do not fear, for I am I in the place of God. So Joseph makes a, very, a great confession. He is not in the place of God. He has no place to actually carry out God's justice on them. That's God's work. What's his role in this whole thing? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You know, which is, uh, I think in a, in a modern novel, that would take you know a couple pages to write out what that exactly means. But we find out that Joseph throws himself on the mercy of the Lord because from his own experience, he has experienced forgiveness of sins from God the Father and the renewal of life from God. And his only place in life is then to forgive his brothers full blast and then actually become a facilitator of life and not death. So God has a last word in this instance, in this life, in Joseph's life, in this story of, between Joseph and his brothers. We have a great, re, uh, great injustice, a great sin against them. But Joseph says, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not part of this. I, I'm actually going to be, I'm not going to join in the evil. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually be part of the good and bring life. Life will be the last word. God will be the last word in this whole thing. So um, Genesis 50 is very important to understanding how we remember rightly because Joseph has now chosen to remember what God has done and not what his brothers have done. And then how does he play that out in his life? Well, he plays it out in a real concrete way. We actually see this theme in, John, in the Gospel of John. We're not going to walk through these, but the Gospel writer John actually makes special mention of his disciples remembering things. They didn't understand what happened at the time, but when Jesus died and rose again, then they remembered these words and these events, and they believed. And then obviously in Matthew chapter 26, 26 through 29, which is fundamental to God remembering rightly and we as men remembering rightly. And, you know, this is no, no coincidence at, that it happens at the same point in our life together, meaning our life together, but God and man's life together. It happens at the Eucharist. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So not only do we gather in the remembrance of Jesus, but as we gather in the remembrance of Jesus, we also participate in remembering. And so what does all that mean? Well, I have this quote here from Brevard Childs. It's actually a really fun book to read if you're interested in those kind of somewhat nerdy things, but it's, uh, it's a fantastic thing. It's Israel's theology of memory, which greatly informs our own understanding of our remembrance in the Lord's Supper. But what he says here is, our study of memory has indicated that each successive generation encountered anew these same determinative events. So these events that have happened in Scripture determine the life of Israel. Okay. That is very important for us. Something's happened in the past which will determine our own lives together. What are those events? God's salvation. That theme continues on through the New Testament in one very particular point, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the idea is redemption, redemptive history continues. What does this mean? Good Lutheran uh, question. It means more than that later generations wrestled with the meaning of the redemptive events, although this is certainly true. Um, okay. It means more than the influence of a past event continued to be felt in successive generations. An obvious fact to no one, uh, no one could possibly deny. Rather, there was an immediate encounter. 
an actual participation in the past. Great acts of redemption. The Old Testament maintained the dynamic, continuing character of past events without sacrificing the historical character as they did, uh, as, as did the myth. So what happened is, as each successive generations, and this is the Passover meal. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't include that in there. I probably should have. Do you guys know what kind of meal the Passover meal? They actually use the, uh, 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 the root word for memory. It's a memorial meal. Not just in terms of a, like a, I'm going to use my brain to remember things, but in this redemptive history sense of remembering things. They are participating in the Passover. So something that happens in the, in the past actually is, they actually are participating in that event. Well, exactly, and I, that's why I feel silly not mentioning it, because what did the children say to their father? Why do we do this? Okay, that explanation is a whole act of remembering. So let's put it to our situation here in the New Testament. Your children go to you and say, why, why do we do this? Well, you know, I mean, when we partake in the Lord's Supper, uh, the small catechism is real helpful for us to answer that question. But not only just the Lord's Supper, but all of our life together. Because it's not just why do we do this, but why did you act that way, Mom and Dad? You know, and these people, you know, I don't know, when you have crazy neighbors who, you know, don't rake up their leaves or, uh, you know, not saying that ever happens. <laughs> Kirby. Well, exactly. That, that's absolutely right. So you've actually said we forget something, and are we forgetting the wrong thing rather than the right thing? All right, actually, Kirby brings up a point, so let's move on. Uh, I think I touched on, on, on a lot of this stuff. Maybe, maybe we'll, just, we'll just jump down to what Kirby just mentioned here. It's on, I, I think, the second page. What do we really want from wrongs experienced? Because the, the, the idea is that, hey, we really want justice. I, I actually don't know if that's, if that's on the front page or the second page because I accidentally added a few notes to mine. Third page, it is uh, a quote by, uh, uh, I don't know how to say his name. Ali Wiesel? Right, okay. Uh, there's, a, there's actually a great, uh, well, a very interesting movie called The Power of Forgiveness. It's a documentary. If you got Netflix, you can look it up watch it streaming. Um, but uh, Elie Wiesel is in it, and he actually brings this uh, point up. Justice without memory is incomplete justice, false and unjust. To forget would be an absolute injustice, in the same way that Auschwitz was the absolute crime. To forget would be the enemy's final triumph. However, to his own admission, when justice was carried out at this uh, trial for Klaus Barbie, he acknowledged that injustice or a justice actually didn't solve the problem because guess what he really desired? He wanted those people who died to come back to life. So, so uh, what Kirby just mentioned is very apropos. When the, uh, victims of some injustice has looked to the perpetrator 
And now they've carried it out to the, to the full degree of the law and the death penalty that still will not bring the loved one back. And fundamentally, that is exactly what, not only what they want, but that's what they need. So, what does the Christian faith have to say to this? Um, there's a great story of, um, uh, of this a South African woman. After uh, apartheid was abolished, and the uh, Commission on Truth and Reconciliation was established in South Africa, and they started bringing these uh, perpetrators of injustice to trial, there's a story of an African woman who, uh, the story goes is that her um, son was arrested and eventually executed, executed in front of her. Then later, they arrested her husband, and uh, she actually didn't know exactly where the body was. So the man who actually did this was brought to justice, found guilty, and uh, the judge asks her what should happen. So this is at the moment. I mean, this is, this is where now we find out what, what's going to happen. Is this woman going to remember rightly? And she does. It's a very powerful story, and I'm actually, it's very powerful. It was a woman, and she, she had a, uh, a bunch of other women in the courtroom uh, actually started to sing behind her, uh, Amazing Grace. And she um, says to the judge, the only response I can give is based on my Lord Jesus, who has forgiven me all of my sins, so I can do no better than him. And I forgive this man. Now, however... This is the great thing. This is really interesting. She says to him, first thing that you're going to do is show me where my husband's body is. And um, I forgot to mention one thing. They had burned the body, so all there was was ashes. And she wanted to gather the ground where the ashes were and have a proper burial. And then she said to him, you took away my son, so from now on you will be my son. And uh, so that's how it ended. I mean, that's an extraordinary story where uh, she remembered rightly in a very profound way. And that, that man now, the question would be, what's the man going to do now? Because he had perpetrated this awful, evil injustice. And as we talk about redemption and restoration... What would be his response? He would say, yes. Not out of guilt and shame, but as making things, making wrongs right. She would, he would, in fact, be the son that she did not have. And love her. And uh, I, have, I, I don't know the rest of the story. That's all I know of the story. So, so I, 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 hope, I hope that was a, a, love, a loving relationship. But I'm presuming it would be just like any other mother-son relationship filled with uh, ups and downs. And, uh, but um, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing thing because for this, this man, he, he could not actually bring her son back to life. But he could, in fact, live the life that her son should have lived. And that is 
Now, now we're getting a little tangent here, but um, he, in fact, is loving his neighbor as himself because he no longer considers himself who he once was. He has died to that life and now has taken on, literally, a new existence and a new life with this woman as his mother. Um, that is a, uh, I really like that story, though. Isn't that interesting? Um, the, mo- the most fascinating thing is that it actually happened. I mean, this is not just words on a page. This is actually lived out. And it does enliven us a little bit, doesn't it, to actually see this? Mary. Book Thief. It's a very interesting book. Concentration camps, yes. Death camps, death camps, yes. Yeah, right. Hannah's suitcase. All right, yeah, so this is very important because uh, remembering uh, what happened in the 1940s is, is a big topic. But as Kirby has said before, what we really need to really focus upon is, is remembering rightly because if we remember these atrocities insofar as to hold over the head of those who per- perpetrated it, that doesn't actually reconcile anything, but that actually keeps the evil alive. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let, let's just go back to the crucifixion real quick. How can this woman actually do this, this African woman? Okay, very simple. And I, I, I think Pastor Gainig talked about this uh, a couple years ago, so I, I don't know if you remember this. But what, what's the greatest sin in the entire universe of all time? Killing God, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, the crucifixion is the worst sin of all. And now, let me ask you a question. Do you have a part in that sin? Yes, we're good Lutherans, and we all know that. Okay, so, okay, uh, now we're at the moment of crisis. Because we have killed God. The one, holy, true, innocent, all-loving, unconditional love. We've killed him. Do we, though, look at the crucifixion with guilt and shame, or do we actually see a sign of love embodied? If you see with guilt and shame, then you're remembering wrongly. You're remembering your sin. But if you see a sign of our salvation as the Apostle Paul, since we're good Lutherans, we do use the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul talks about, I preach nothing but Christ crucified. If we look at the crucifix and see a sign of love, then we remember rightly. Because if we were to actually look at the cross and see our participation in it, we, that would, that, that's not good. Um, but if we actually see on the cross God's love for us and his means of saving our souls, saving us, then we're remembering rightly. I think for a lot of us, that's an easy thing to do. We can actually see the cross and see God's love. What this woman did in Africa is just simply applied that same thing to her own experience between another person. The profound, radical nature of the crucifixion actually took hold of her life, really. And that's the ramifications of what the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus can actually do. It can do that. So, um, 
So yeah, rather than remembering our sin, both God and man. So, okay, on the flip side too is that, I'm sorry, that's not only for us, but that's also for God too. God actually looks at the crucifixion. What does he see? Does he see uh, uh, his people unlovingly treating him, killing him? Uh, No. Right, so he actually sees a sign of love too. Yes, so God the Father... God the Father looks upon his son and sees, sees love. So he, both God and man are able to see Jesus' death as love. I forgot the apostrophe. Maybe you don't have that in your folder. Okay, Jesus Christ in love took our spot on the cross and then gave that salvation to the world. So Jesus reconciled that memory for our salvation. Now for us, rather than focusing upon our part in the crucifixion as executors, we focus upon our Lord's work for us. We remember rightly. So the very moment of history, in the history of the universe, where we could find despair, we actually experience infinite love. Or as the Lenten hymn, my song is love unknown. Okay. So so what does the death and, and resurrection actually do to memory? It separates our sin from us and puts it on Jesus. That's very important. That's, that's Romans 5. It also provides justice, meaning that justice is carried out, but it's carried out on on Jesus as the representative of man and makes God's love present in the world, which then enables unconditional love, real love, to actually exist. And that's what we see in the story of the South African woman. Um, So, you know, the thing is, though, is that, like, how does that actually happen for us? What's the process of remembering rightly? It happens in the Old Testament, by the way, with the golden calf. Same, the same thing, but okay. Judy, yeah. Okay, that's good. Uh, in fact, uh, um, okay. So, so this is wh- this is where we we uh, yes, right. And, and that's very dangerous. But the thing is, though, Judy, the fact that you actually struggle with it is a sign that God is actually at work in it. Because if you okay, let's just let's just bring it back to the crucifixion. That's the moment where, I mean, that's the atrocities of all atrocities. And if, if, if we were to keep focusing on ourselves, the question would be, how can I live? And that's Judas. And he doesn't live. Because, in fact, there's no point to life. Death has completely consumed you. Exactly. Sin has completely consumed you, and it, that means death. Uh, death unreconciled. Okay, so the strange thing is, is that your own experiences have actually informed your view on this without, you, you don't even know it, is that you're able to live today even though you killed God. So that is the strength to which we now, now because you actually now are able to live. I mean, God, God has worked in your life, uh, life, <laughs> he has worked in your life, real life, um, so now the struggle is then is as we perpetrate sin against a fellow person, uh, you know, how do we move on with that? And if we choose to ignore it, pretend that it didn't happen, that, that hurts the person still, but that also ruins your own soul too. Um, but, but the reality is, is that 
And when I say reality, that doesn't mean like you actually believe it and, and like it and desire it, but that's actually true, is the fact that the death and resurrection has reconciled you. I mean, you, you, you have no, you have a relationship with God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, now you actually are able to, to have this relationship with other people. Now the struggle is, like you said, how do I live that out? How does that make that happen? Well, that, that's the process of remembering rightly. Logic is not done according to man's logic, but it's the logic of grace, the logic of love, the logic of Jesus, which is, uh, you know, Pastor Gainey preached uh, about a month or so ago, you know, it's kind of upside down. That doesn't make sense. So now you're wrestling with the fact that things don't make sense. Because, uh, you know, if I sinned against Mary Lou, and I, 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 I just have a problem, I can't, I can't deal with this, I'm, I'm, I want to reconcile it, but I'm afraid to reconcile it. Um, I have, to, I have to think on a different plane. I have to think according to the logic of, of Jesus. And that begins with Jesus' life in you. So I think as we train ourselves, uh, as God trains us in the means to which he uh, carries this out through his, this goes back to St. Matilda, his sacred scripture and his uh, sacraments, we begin to now we are able to begin to live that life which we actually desire, but we are afraid to, in fact, live. So we are overcoming our own fears and struggles. That's a process that takes, that takes a lifetime, Judy. Um, you know, this, uh, this African woman just gives us hope that it can actually happen. I mean, it does happen in Scripture, but for sometimes we, we struggle with the actual embodiment in the here and now. We, we treat the Bible still as a, only a book. So if we, we work on prayer, prayer, uh, baptism, prayer, and Eucharist, then, okay, so we proclaim that the risen Christ returns to those who crucified him, that's very important, with a judgment that actually does not condemn the world, but instead offers new life. But that new life comes through forgiveness and, and the return of memory. And that's, so, so that's where we go now. So Judy, you, have, you, have a, you, you sinned against somebody, and now the question would be, how are we going to remember this instance? If we let the memory stay as is, it's only despair. But if we actually see our role in restoration, and we can actually do that because of Jesus, then the story is actually not finished between Mary Lou and I. I have, I have the opportunity to, in fact, engage Mary Lou and write a story according to what Jesus has done for us. And I say, Mary Lou, please forgive me. I don't know. Let's, well, actually, let's, let's play this out. I um, took all the bags from Mary Lou. I stole them. <laughs> it's a very, it was a very silly example because I don't want to get too, like, too, uh, you know, you, you can, the template. Yes. So I stole, I stole these things from Mary Lou, and, you know, I actually got rid of them. I, I can't, like, give them back to her. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to tell Mary Lou I am sorry. Mary Lou's response, now, I can't demand this from Mary Lou. That's a whole other issue. I can't say, you better forgive me. The proper response would be to forgive me, uh, because that's, 
that's actually the, the element of unconditional, you, you're putting yourself at the mercy of those who, who you sinned against. So, which means, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Anyways, back to Mary Lou. I say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And let's presume Mary Lou is enlivened by the love of Jesus and says, I forgive you. Now what do we do? There's, yes, now we go to restitution, which is now, I mean, this is a silly example, but I mean, the, the African woman is a profound example of restitution or restoration. Um, you know, for, in this instance, now we have to work together. We have, to, we have to figure out how life is going to happen once we are at the point of forgiveness. And, you know, this is very easy because we just go get some more bags. And most likely I might have some extra, you know, maybe $10. I don't know how much those things cost. But let's presume I have some disposable income. Mary Lou might actually say, you know what, Pastor, I have some extra dollars too. And we'll come together and we'll, rest, we'll restitute this thing together. Um, th- that's the point now where people, I'm like, we don't know how to get through this. We, we don't know what's the next step. We know, hey, I can forgive you, you forgive me. Well, what's life going to look like after this? Well, it's not going to look the same. Going back can't be an option. Just, and that's, that's the struggle of Eli Weisel, is that he's experienced justice, but now what? He still has his loved ones gone. He can't go back, so he has to find a new way. And justice, obviously, is not the way towards that. Mary Lou and I, you know, we found a way to get through the, the stolen bags. But for most of our life, most of our experiences in life, finding the next step is the things that, it, there's, there's no blueprint. Um, well, the blueprint is Jesus, and, and the, the path that we follow is Jesus. But we have to now, together, throw ourselves upon Jesus' mercy, and he will lead us through this darkness, or, or, or he'll, he'll lead us from the dark to the light. Um, and so, so then how do you do that? You, uh, like, like uh, St. Gertrude and St. Matilda, you throw yourself into God's Word, the Holy Eucharist, and those are the process. And you do it, though, again, you do it uh, uh, with the open heart and mind of mercy. Uh, you, like I, I think I wrote on there, casting your cares upon Jesus' mercy and be admitted into the world of grace, mercy, and love. So as Mary Lou admits me into that world of grace and love, now we're in the same plane. We're in the same reality, the logic of grace and love in Jesus. And now together we figure out what our life is going to look like. Well, no, because he's re- she's remembering rightly. Remembering wrongly would say, you remember that time? Right. <laughs> Because, well, and that's the thing, though, is that we don't actually forget that, we don't, yeah, exactly, we don't, we don't forget the sin that's happened insofar as, because once we forgive, once, if we were to forget that sin, then we also forget forgiveness. Because the moment of, that's the whole point of the Old Testament where God says, hey, you remember that time uh, that I brought you out of Egypt? The people are like, oh, yeah, okay, God, I heard that already. Don't bring that up again, please. They're like, yeah, that's right. That's, that's the point where we experience love together. So, um, you know, so yeah, I mean, realistically speaking, Mary Lou shouldn't bring up the bag because it's really not that big of a deal. Um, but see, the struggle now is in our life together, like, so, okay, so let's say, um, I'm just going to 
create this made-up scenario uh, where, uh, let's say, I gotta think of man, I've, I've done a lot of things in my life here. Um, <laughs> let's say there's this fictional uh, father and son where the father, you know, ruins the son's life. That doesn't happen to my dad. It's fantastic. He's great. Um, and the father says to the son, "Please forgive me." And the son says, absolutely, I want, you know, I want you back in my life, I want everything. That father has to struggle now because there will be instances throughout his life that will remind him of what he has done against his son. Right. But the reality is, though, is that if he remembers rightly his relationship with his son, it's not the wrongs, but it's the forgiveness and the restitution or the restoration of that relationship. So even though he might experience guilt and shame throughout the rest of his life, those are more opportunities for forgiveness to be exercised. And that is remembering rightly. So, um, so it's a great struggle. It's not a clear-cut issue. I mean, life is, I mean, I don't know. Is your life black and white always? I mean, I don't know. Mine, mine is always kind of, uh, life is gray. well, I, it's not so much gray as much as it's just messy. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there's definitely a, bla- a lot of black and white in my life, but it's just all mixed together. Yeah, it's, uh, and that's the important is, is trying to figure out what's black, what's white, and then living together in that because um, well, we need to have black and white because we need to have right and wrong, good and evil. We don't, that's, that's, maybe that's a bad analogy. We shouldn't talk about colors like that. Um, yeah, yeah, the colors are sometimes messy. See, okay, so here's the thing, too, is that, you know, we revisit these, these injustices every year. It's called Good Friday. Um, but the thing is, though, is that are we, th- this is a false antithesis. I know some people, you know, we have this false antithesis between Jesus on the cross and an empty cross. Uh, you know, I was told one time that uh, an empty cross is the sign of the resurrection. No, that's wrong. An empty tomb is the sign of the resurrection. So we don't, want, we don't want to have a false antithesis between the death and resurrection of Jesus. They always go together. But the reality is, is that we are Easter people. We are people of the resurrection. Okay? And, and if that happens, then um, uh, we, can, we, can, we can actually call Friday good. I mean, this is a good thing. Uh, I don't even know where we are. But anyways, that's... That's just remember rightly. Uh, oh, okay, so now as we remember rightly, then we actually are participating. That's right. I, I think that's towards the end of the handout. Is that when we participate in baptism, prayer, and the Eucharist, we're re-narrating, we're retelling our story, remembering rightly. The resi- Yeah, that's the whole Easter people business. Is that um, we retell the story according to Easter, according to our, our new life together, and not according to the sin. And we, Judy, this goes back to you. We can only approach someone who sinned, like we sinned against, if we actually believe these things have happened. You've been baptized. You've been you've been marked with the name of Jesus. You can enter into the presence of God in the name of Jesus in prayer. And then, gathered in the name and the remembrance of Jesus, we can now approach and we can partake of God's own divine life. As we, as our life is always re-narrated every every. Uh, divine service, um, we are enlivened and strengthened by that same story of remembering rightly. And thus, when we are sent out after church, we are able then to approach one another. But again, it's not a 
it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's something we actually have to struggle with. I mean, for me, too. I mean, even as a pastor, I know I've gone to people and I said, you know, please forgive me. And I've got to figure out what in the world's, what's next, you know? Uh, which is also, I, I, I've always wanted to do this in a sermon because I think it's really funny, but it's very profound. Finding Nemo. Has everyone seen Finding Nemo, I hope? Okay. You know, they, they all want freedom, right? These, these fishies in the aquarium, and they finally get freedom, and they're still in those bags. And the, and the blowfish now says, you know, he says, now what? You know, and uh, so now they got to figure out what, how their life is together. Uh, but to get to that point is, is a miracle in itself. And, um, yeah, it was a miracle for those fish to get out of the aquarium. All right, uh, any questions? Uh, we're going we're gonna to pray. And then uh, if you want to add any names for the unemployed, you know, just, just meet with me afterwards.